For God so, that's not in the Greek, by the way. I just put that in there because I like it. God so loved the world. God so loved who? The world. Every man, woman, and child. That's what we might call the universal scope of God's love. That's God loves everyone. But it's not sufficient to say, God loves everybody. Let's close with prayer. Because the fact that God loves all necessarily means that God loves each. Are you following? So God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that, what's the next word? Whosoever. That's where you live. That's where I live. There's the world and then there's whosoever. Those are specific names of individuals with addresses and histories and traumas and complex issues. These are individual persons that God knows each one. The Bible's picture of God is extremely, extremely intimate with regards to human beings, as we're going to see in just a moment. So God loves the world, yes, he does, but God also loves each individual. Now, I'm really benefited by this statement from the book Steps to Christ, page 100 along these lines. This is one of the most incredibly wonderful things with implications that are astounding that you will ever read, not just in the writings of this one author, but I do a lot of reading and it's hard. You'd be hard pressed to find anything this astounding in all of human literature. The relations between God and each soul are as distinct and full as though there were not another soul upon the earth to share his watch care, not another soul for whom he gave his beloved son. Now, what this statement is essentially saying to us is it's describing the exponential nature of love. Love is not a divisible sum. You can love more than one person with all your heart. When Megan said to me, Mr. Ty, I love you with all my heart, that didn't diminish at all the fact that she also loved her mommy and her daddy and her brother with all her heart. Love is not a divisible sum. Love is an exponential relational reality. Not only, not only is it possible to love more than one person with the entire intelligence and passion of your being, a wife and a son and a daughter and a nana and a papa. It's possible for you to juggle all those relationships within your own psychological makeup and to genuinely love each one with the totality of your being. Now, taking this to the infinite scale, because we're finite, but God is infinite, what this statement is suggesting is that God loves and knows each person with such a intimacy, such an interpersonal dynamic, that it is as if you and I, each of us as individuals, are alone with God in the universe. Now, that's not hyperbole. That's not exaggeration for effect. That's describing a concrete reality. God literally loves you as if you were the only person in all the universe to love. 
There is a very real sense in which you are alone in the universe with God. Now, on our finite human scale, we understand how this works. As soon as I begin to describe it, you'll say, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That's exactly how it works. The fact is that even on our human level, we know that it's possible to be alone with someone in a crowd. If you're a mom and you're at the mall and there are all kinds of people and there's your one little son, there are hundreds of people and you're alone in your hypersensitivity and consciousness of that one. Yes or no? Yes. I do a lot of teaching events. And 80% of the time, my wife goes with me. So, so I'll stand up to speak to groups of people, hundreds, thousands of people sometimes. But always, subconsciously, I always, whenever I stand up to speak, I immediately, it's time I come up and I locate her. Nobody knows I've located her, but she knows I've located her because we get eye contact for a split second and I'm alone with her. I'm with all those people, but I'm with her in a unique sense. There's some kind of energy between the two of us. And if I'm not careful and if I look at her too long, She'll start flirting with me with her eyes and I'll have to look back at her and say to her with my eyes, with no words, I'm about to preach the word, girl. Quit doing that. (laughs) And I'll have to just look away from her. And then if I look back at her, she'll look at me and with her eyes without words because you do that when you are in love for a long time. Boy, you can say a lot without words. And she'll say to me through her eyes, don't preach too long. And I'll say to her with my eyes, this is none of your business. And I'll just go on my merry way. My point is it's possible to be alone with someone in a crowd. You understand how this works. There is a very real sense in which you are alone in the universe with God. Why? Because God is hyper-aware, hyper-conscious, and hypersensitive of you, your existence, your thoughts, your feelings, and everything that's ever happened to you. Now, Now, this idea, this idea is illustrated... For me, anyway, this is just an illustration I've developed. Maybe it'll help, maybe it won't, but this helps me. This in the illustration is you. Don't be embarrassed by the shape of your head. Everybody has problems. Actually, I did it this way because there's only so much space on a slide, and it all had to fit. Okay, and I don't know why you're not smiling. You need to get over whatever it is that's troubling you. But this is you in the illustration. This is me. This is the individual, let's say. You, me, and every other individual. Now, every individual has what we're going to call an inner circle. An inner circle of intimate relationships. I don't know who that is for you, but you know who these are for you. They have names, right? For me, that would be my wife, Sue, my daughter, Amber, my son, Jason, my daughter, Leah, and then my daughter, Amber, married some dude. What's his name? Hmm. Jerome. And they had two children, Mason and Austin. That's my inner circle. Okay, that's my, that's my tight inner circle of intimate relationships. Now, you have different names for that. Maybe your inner circle is larger. My mom's deceased, or she would be in that inner circle. I loved my mom. My mom was incredible, and it's a sad thing that she didn't live to encounter her own grandchildren. But she would be there. Maybe your inner circle is different. You would have other names there, more names, fewer names. I don't know what it is for you. 
But every one of us has an inner circle of relationships. Now, watch where the illustration goes, because let's just say that this pod is my daughter, Amber. Amber has some relationships that are pretty tight, too. For her, that would be like her husband, Jerome. I mean, I like the guy, but come on, he's not my daughter. (laughs) And she is close to him, and therefore I'm close to him. I like him. He's a cool guy. I would have no relationship with him whatsoever if he'd not married my daughter. You understand what I'm saying? Okay, so, but then my daughter Amber has a best friend, and let's say that her, her best friend's name is, is Melissa. I, actually, I think that, that is her name, Melissa. All right? So follow the illustration. Down in the bottom, I don't know if you can see this, the NF, that stands for, for the note-takers, If you're not a note taker, by the way, you should become one. It's a really great way to indelibly imprint information in your mind. The NF stands for nearness factor. What does it stand for, everybody? This is the meeting after lunch, so you should talk. Nearness factor, factor, okay? And watch this. You have a nearness factor of some measure with every individual, and then there is what we're going to call a sensitivity quotient or a sensitivity level. Nearness factor yields sensitivity quotient. Are you still tracking with me? Okay, so in the illustration, let's say with my daughter Amber, on a scale from 1 to 10, I have a nearness factor on a scale from 1 to 10 of 10, maximum nearness, maximum intimacy. This little girl came out of the womb and the doctor placed her in my arms. This is my daughter. Very close. Nearness factor of 10, which yields a sensitivity quotient of 10. Whatever she feels, I feel. If something impacts her, it's impacting me. That's how intimacy works. Or say it like this. You'll you'll get this immediately when I say this. The more you love someone, the more you hurt when they hurt. Yes or no? And the more you love someone the more happy you are when they're happy. Yes or no? So there's a direct connection. There's a direct correlation between intimacy and sensitivity. Yes or no? Yeah. Love yields, intimacy yields sensitivity levels. Okay. So then there's this girl. Her name is Melissa. Now, Melissa, I'm close to her through Amber. She's two steps out from me. She's Amber's best friend. That's great. If somebody came in right now and said, hey, Ty, hey, Ty, we just got an emergency call. Your daughter Amber has had an accident or something. We don't know what, but she's in trouble. I would drop everything. I wouldn't say another word. I'd grab my phone. I'd be multitasking. I'd be changing my flight while I'm getting in the car. And I would get to her as I'm calling to find out what's going on. If you walked in the door and said, hey, Ty, we just got a call. Your daughter's best friend, Melissa, is in trouble. My reaction would be sensitive, but not so sensitive. I would say something to you like, hey, would you all mind pausing with me right now and praying for Melissa? I'd pray, and then I'd continue to deliver the message because I know something. I know that she has her own inner circle of people who will come to her aid And I just can't, not because I'm hard, cruel, mean, or jaded, but I can't feel the level of sensitivity for Melissa that I feel for Amber. I just can't. Amber's my girl. 
Amber is my daughter. With Amber, I have long, intimate history. With Melissa, I have a relationship through Amber. It's the way it works. I'm not cold. I'm not mean. I'm not hard. I'm finite. And so are you. So the illustration continues. Let's say, for example, that, that, that my daughter Amber, that's Amber, has a friend named Melissa who has a mom named Judy. I'm not even sure if that's her name. And the sensitivity level is decreasing because I hardly know Judy. But I would be, I would be concerned if Melissa's mom was going through something. Do you feel what I'm saying? But let's go a step further because we've got seven point whatever, three billion people on the planet. And let's just say that my daughter Amber has a friend named Melissa who has a mom named Judy who has a third cousin on her mother's side in the north of Ireland named Bobby McGillicuddy. And if you told me that Bobby was going through something, Bobby is going through something, I might in the next 10 seconds turn to my wife and say, I'm really hungry, what's for dinner? The thing's gone from me. I can't even hang out there. I don't even know Bobby. But somebody does. Far away in the north of Ireland, somebody is very, very close to Bobby. And you're channel surfing, and you see that little boy. He looks seven, maybe eight. His face is covered with dirt. And you can see the tracks of his tears through the dirt. And the journalist informs you that a bomb has just gone off and his parents and all of his family are dead. And he stands there on camera crying. And your heart is stabbed momentarily with pain. And then what? You change the channel. You're not mean. You're not hard. You're not jaded. You're just finite. And your emotional capacity is only so big. You couldn't juggle all the pain and all the joy in the world if you wanted to. You simply couldn't process it. You would experience complete mental breakdown if you spent too much time trying to empathize with everybody on the planet. Again, not because you're hard, mean, cold, or jaded, but because you're finite in your capacity to juggle that many empathetic relationships. But here in the illustration, we go a step further. This is God in the illustration. And God has an inner circle. And in God's inner circle of maximum intimacy relationships, on a scale from 1 to 10, 10, probably 12, God's sensitivity level is maximum, and in his inner circle, that's me. And that's you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you. And, and I can't expand the illustration out because there is nobody who's two steps out from God. Everybody is inner circle for God. Because God has the emotional capacity of an infinite love that makes him perfectly acutely conscious of every person in the world as if that person were the only person in the world. There is no, there is no division 
in his emotional capacity and therefore no diminishing of his emotional capacity. Now, this is incredible when you begin to look at what Scripture says about this. I didn't make all of that up. I made the illustration up, but I made the illustration up to illustrate what's actually in the Bible. This is from Isaiah 63, verse 9, and it is a retrospect statement. Here's Isaiah the prophet looking back on the children of Israel in their wilderness wanderings with with all the things they experienced, the suffering, the scorching heat, the hunger, the deaths, all they experienced. And Isaiah, in retrospect, looking back, says, in all their afflictions, he, that's God, was afflicted. What? Now you understand this if you pause to think about it. I remember as a young man standing at my mother's bedroom door. She was completely unconscious of my presence as I looked in and watched her week after week, month after month, die of lymphoma. I would come home, I would see her, and her pain resonated into my heart. I couldn't feel the physical pain of the cancer growing in her body, but I could feel the emotional pain of what she was going through. Why? Because love feels what others feel. That is the nature of love. In all their afflictions, he was afflicted, and the language goes on and says, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love, notice his love is what, what gives God this relational capacity. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them and he bore them and carried them all the days of old. Now, this isn't talking about God taking up, up physical bodies onto his shoulders and carrying them and burying them. It's describing the fact that God bore them and carried them emotionally. Anybody here who's been in a relationship with somebody who was severely dysfunctional or addicted to something or in any way pursuing self-destructive habit patterns, anybody who's been in a severely dysfunctional relationship knows what this language means. You know that... If you love someone, you have to carry them and bear them emotionally just to remain in the relationship. And you're afraid to sever the relationship because you don't want them off on their own without your potential influence to be there to bring about healing when they finally wake up to reality. So you retain the relationship in the hope of their awakening but there are certain things you can't tell them. You own their pain, thank you. There are certain things you can't tell them because if you were to tell a severely dysfunctional person the whole truth about themselves, the whole ugly truth all at once, they would snap and run from you and the relationship would be over. And even if you haven't explained this to yourself, when I explain it to you right now, you're sitting there going, "Uh uh-huh, That's exactly how it works. 
So you retain the relationship in the hope of healing, but along the way, you have to compensate for their dysfunction with your love. You have to carry them. You have to bear them. And this is pervasive through Scripture. Jesus said to the disciples, and they were quite a crew, Jesus said, there are many things I would like to tell you, but you can't bear them now. If Jesus, in the first year of his relationship with Peter, were to tell Peter the whole truth about Peter, the relationship would have ended. And the influence could not continue to be exerted. So Jesus continued in the relationship, allowing his love to cover a multitude of sins and to compensate for the lack because he lived in hope of Peter finally awaking to reality and becoming responsible. That's how relationships work. Now, even that breaks down on our level as human beings because you can't continue in a relationship that involves a kind of abuse that would be damaging in a marriage or to children. There's a point at which we as finite creatures have to sever a relationship in order to survive. But on God's level, there's no severing for survival. He just bears it all. Every nanosecond of every day, in all our afflictions, he is afflicted. Every single day on planet Earth, 40,000 plus children die of starvation. And he feels it all. Every day, just in the United States of America, every three minutes, another woman is raped. And he feels it all. Every three seconds, there's another act of domestic violence. And he feels all of it. You can't, I can't. He can, and he does. His love is infinite, therefore his capacity for suffering is infinite. In Psalm 56, verse 8, David, poetically, David, the songwriter, sings to the Lord, you keep track of all my tears, of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. Now, this is poetry. So the bottles are here serving as a placeholder for a reality. The bottles are symbolic of something. Don't, don't imagine this in the, in the literal sense. You, you're not going to go to heaven and find big shelves with bottles full of saline solution, alphabetized, and find your name, and there's all the tears you've ever cried. That's not, it's a symbol, It's a symbol. It's essentially saying every tear you've ever shed, God has been perfectly conscious of. Nothing you've ever experienced has ever escaped his notice and nothing you've ever experienced has ever escaped his emotional grasp. In Hebrews 4.15, Jesus is described as the one who is touched with the feelings of, of our infirmities. We speak of God being omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing, omnipresent, everywhere, all the time, simultaneously. I'd like to suggest a fourth omne be introduced into your vocabulary. God is also omnipassionate or 
omnibenevolent. God is omni-emotional. God literally feels everything going on in the world simultaneously. Jesus made this clear in Matthew 25. This should be a familiar passage to anybody who's read the Bible at all. And even if you haven't read the Bible much, you've heard this. Jesus says, I was hungry, you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me water to drink. I was in prison, you visited me. And these people are going, uh, we don't remember that. We don't remember feeding you, giving you anything to drink. We don't remember visiting you in prison. And Jesus says, in as much as you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And as much as you did it not to the least of these, you did it not for me. This is solidarity language. This is Jesus saying, I love each person so intimately, so personally, that anything you do to anyone, it's like you did it to me. Now, I grew up on the streets of LA, and I grew up around a lot of rough boys. We were always fighting, fist fights, one after another, with my best friends. I don't know how guys do that, but we were the next day playing together. But there was one thing that would sever a relationship and would cause more blows to be thrown than anything else. You could literally say anything to anybody on the street, but there was an unspoken code, and it went something like this. Don't you dare talk about my mother. If somebody spoke disparaging words about somebody's mother, that was the end of the relationship. Why? Because there is an empathetic connection that a child has with the mother that hardly anything in heaven or earth could sever. There is a connection and Jesus is describing that kind of connection and he's saying, I love each person with such a love that you can't do anything to anybody that I'm not impacted by. The same is true in all your relationships, your inner circle, right? Anybody who does anything to those you love, it impacts you. That's the nature of love. In the book Desire of Ages by Ellen White, page 356, one of the most profound things you will ever read anywhere, it says, not a sigh is breathed. Do a sigh. What's a sigh? Ah, it's not a scream. It's not, ah! It's on the opposite end of the spectrum. There's a scream, and then on the opposite end of the spectrum is a sigh. A sigh is the slightest expression of discomfort. Not a sigh is breathed. Not a pain is felt. Not a grief pierces the soul. But the throb vibrates to the Father's heart. Wow. God is supremely empathetic. You wake up in the morning and the moment you open your eyes and you begin to take in the light and you begin to focus and you begin to stretch, the moment you open your eyes in the morning, God's eyes are upon your countenance. He is as conscious of you 
as if you were the only person in the world to be conscious of, like the new mother or the new father standing over the crib, just waiting for her to open her eyes. God is looking, seeing, and feeling everything that you experience. You wake up, you come to the edge of the bed. If you're over 40, you have to get momentum now. So you start rocking, (laughs) and you get up, and you begin navigating through the room, and there's that familiar pain in your left knee from all those years of long-distance running. And that pain in your left knee is known to the God of the universe. And the first time, you crack a smile in the day because, ah, there she is, there he is. There's that little boy, that little girl. There's that husband, that wife. There's that nana, that papa. There's that auntie, that uncle. The first time you crack a smile and you laugh, your laughter penetrates the heart of God with happiness. He's in solidarity with you because God is love. What kind of love is God? Well, God's love is multifaceted. It's multidimensional. I'm going to share with you two dimensions of God's love in closing. First of all, there is what the Greeks called agape love. We as English-speaking Americans, we are so handicapped with this word love. All we have is the word love. We don't have anywhere else we can go. I can say to you on one breath, I love tacos, I love surfing, I love my wife. And you have to sort that out so that my wife isn't on the same level as tacos, You have to sort that out because we just have one word, right? Just, I love, I love. And we use that word so loosely that we haven't reserved it for what it should be reserved for. So I don't even say I love tacos anymore. I do love tacos, but I don't say I love tacos. I say I really like tacos because I want to reserve that one English word, that one, we in English, we have a poverty of words for love. But the Greeks, they had, they had agape, and then they had some other words for different dimensions of love. Well, what is agape? Agape is unilateral love. That's the word that Jesus used in John 3.16 that we read earlier. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The word there is agape. It's unilateral love. That is, by unilateral, I mean one-way love, unconditional. doesn't matter what you're doing, you can't make God love you any more than he already does because he loves you with all his love. You can't increase it. God's love, God's agape love, isn't like the romantic dimmer switch in your dining room. You can't turn it up or down. It's just full noonday brilliance. That's God's love for you on the agape level, okay? So God loves you and me with agape love, but it's not a flattering kind of love. It's not flattering. Agape love, unilateral love. God is love, therefore he loves you regardless of and in spite of your sins and shortcomings and mistakes and all the dysfunction, he still loves you. But it doesn't doesn't work, at least not for human beings at the outset of a relationship. No single guy is going to go to a girl that he wants to win for marriage and say, listen, 
I love you with agape love. Um, I don't see anything in you that's deserving of it. In fact, you're kind of messed up, but I still love you, and I'd like you to marry me. She's going to say, get out of here. So on the human level, it needs to begin with attraction, but anyone who's married knows that while you initially are attracted to one another because of qualities you see in the other, when you get married, agape love needs to gradually develop so that you continue loving one another even when those qualities fail, and they do. So there's another kind of love. At the end of his ministry, just one time, in the Gospel of John, Jesus is coming to the conclusion of his ministry, and he says, these things I have spoken to you in figurative language. You know that about him, right? He, everything was a story. Parable, 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 story, 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 symbol, symbol, symbol. He says at the end of his ministry, I've been talking to you in figurative language all along. But the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. And what will he tell us plainly about the Father when all the metaphors are stripped away? When all the symbols and parables and stories give way to just blunt reality, what is the truth plainly about the Father? In that day, he goes on to say, you will ask in my name, That's how we pray, in the name of Jesus. We want and need a mediator between us and God. But mediation isn't a wall, it's a bridge. Mediation serves its purpose by putting itself out of business. If you do marriage counseling between two estranged people, the point isn't for you as the mediator to stay there forever. The point is to be a bridge of understanding so that they can get back into intimacy with one another so that you can become unnecessary. We need Jesus as our mediator because our relationship with God is broken. But mediation is a bridge, not a wall. So Jesus says, in that day, you will ask in my name. You'll keep praying in the name of Jesus. But then he says, but I do not say to you that I will pray the Father for you. There's coming a day when Jesus says, you're going to keep praying in my name because that's, that's what you should do and that's the habit you've developed. You're going to always say, in the name of Jesus, in your prayers. But Jesus is saying, the day is coming when I'm not going to be between you and the Father anymore. And at that point, you want to say, ah, that's scary. Where are you? At that point, you want to say, oh no, Jesus, why not? Have you turned on us? And he says, no, 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 you misunderstand. You'll pray in my name, but you won't need me to pray for, the, for you to the Father anymore because the Father himself loves you. And that's the big thing that's been eluding all of our grasp. The Father himself loves you. Jesus is saying, I'm here as a mediator for you because you need a mediator. But the whole point of my mediation is not to keep you away from the Father, but to gradually escort you back to the Father. So I won't ask for you anymore because the Father himself loves you. Now, Jesus did something interesting here. In John 3.16, he said, For God so loved agape, unilateral love, that unflattering love that says, In all your dysfunction and sin and all your ugliness, I still love you because I'm good. I love you because 
God is love. But now Jesus does something interesting. Now he doesn't use the word agape. He throws us this incredibly delightful curveball. He says, by the way, the father himself, and now the word he uses is phileo. Phileo is friendship love. Like Philadelphia, same Greek derivative. Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. Phileo love is friendship love. It's, it's like love. When, when my wife, all these years we've been married, she's told me, oh, I love you. And I'm like, oh, that's great. I love you too. And that's good and wonderful. But sometimes I've wondered because I'm looking at her and I'm saying, of course you love me, baby. You're a good Christian girl. And the Bible says even love your enemies. <laughs> I've hurt you. I've made you cry. And of course you love me. I know she loves me because she's a good girl. She's good, so she loves me. But it's not flattering on that level. But one day she threw me a curveball and she was speaking and she said, I'm so in, and I was expecting, I'm so in love with you. And she said, I'm in like with you. I said, what? You actually like me? Yes, I like you. Really, sweetie? You like me? Yes. I said, oh, that's so good to know because I like you too. It's so good to be married to someone not only that you love, but someone you like. And God is saying to you and me, not only do I love you, agape, not only do I love you with a unilateral love that you can depend on, not only do I love you with an unconditional love regardless of your moral condition, but I also like you. I actually like the you that you are. Now, there are some things that that we need to deal with. There's some dysfunction that we need to... You're weird. There's some things about you that need to be corrected, but I like you. There is a personality, there is a character, there is a certain configuration of attributes in you that I like. Imagine you right now. Imagine you, the precise you that you are, with all your idiosyncrasies and weirdities. By the way, everybody's normal till you get to know them. That's just a fact, okay? <laughs> you are as weird as the next person. Do not kid yourself. Somebody who's close to you should tell you the truth. You're weird. Okay, so As we get to know God, as we build this relationship with the Lord, I want you to imagine you, the you that you are, with all your uniqueness. Imagine you with all the pain, the wounds, the guilt, the horrors, the traumas, the dysfunctions, the sins. Imagine you with all of that deleted from your hard drive. And all that's left is the person God always meant you to be. And imagine all those unique character traits that make you the you that you are flowering into maturity. Imagine you free and liberated and healed of all that holds you down. And then you're beginning to imagine your potential. 
and what God's desire is for you. And then you can begin to wrap your mind around the idea that, wait a minute, wait a minute. God not only loves me, God likes me. What I'm saying to you is that God's love is a circle, as it were. This is a, geograph- uh, a, a geometric illustration. God's love is a circle, the center of which is everywhere, and the circumference of which is nowhere. So if you ask me, where is the center of God's love? Where is God's love with all of its focus and passion? Where is the center of God's love? I would say it's right there. And there. And there. And there. And here, simultaneously. And if you said, well, where's the circumference? There is no circumference. There are no edges, no ceiling, no walls. There's nowhere you can go outside of the parameters of God's love. God is love and he loves you with such an enormous, intimate love that if we could just begin to grasp it, everything in the world would look different. We would look different to ourselves. Everybody would look different to us. All of our relationships would begin to mend and heal and restore, and everything would become beautiful in its time. What I'm saying to you is that the Bible is like God coming up the middle aisle with a piece of paper in his hands. And he puts it in your hands and mine, and we find ourselves looking at the most beautiful composite of reality imaginable. And God says, do you see it? And you say, yeah, I think I do. And God says, there's a big person and there's a little person. I'm the big person and you're the little one. And do you see that we're holding hands? Yes, Lord, I see that. Do you know why? Why, Lord? Why are we holding hands in this picture? Because we like each other. That's why. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for the kind of God that you are. Please emancipate us from every dark image and lie and misconception that has kept us from you. Please flood our hearts with a rational, logical, emotionally rich understanding of your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for your time.